thank you, orchestra, and uh, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. Hey, I want to thank uh, Pastor Jonathan for leading us in that time of just prayer. You know, Jesus said that his house would be known as a house of prayer, that above all things, that he wanted his house to be associated with prayer, not a house of preaching, and I love to preach, not a house of great music, and man, we've got that but a house of prayer. Because you see, it's when we pray, there's nothing like prayer that expresses our total sense of dependence upon God. When we pray, we're putting ourselves in a place of complete submission and surrender to God and his will and his purpose. And the enemy fears a praying Christian. The enemy fears a praying church. And if we're to be effective and fruitful in terms of ministry and gospel outreach and seeing people come to faith in Jesus, uh, folks, it won't happen apart from prayer. Intercessory prayer on our part as the people of God. As our pastors, we were meeting and praying just this past week, uh, just with a heavier burden uh, to give ourselves more earnestly to prayer uh, and to give ourselves more consistently to prayer and giving you time for prayer Oftentimes, prayer in a corporate setting like this, I've been convicted because often we pray in transition. But we really need to give ourselves to just intense times of prayer, congregationally, corporately. And and again, I've said this before, but there's nothing more important that you could do for me as a pastor as I stand and preach, is to pray. And pray that the Word of God would, as it's being scattered, that it would find a place in the hearts and in the minds of people because Satan would love nothing more than to snatch that word away and to prevent people from coming to an understanding of the truth. And so we pray to that end. And that's why spiritual warfare is such a reality. And in this passage, Ephesians chapter 6, if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, Paul deals with the fact that we're locked in a battle And you may find yourself in a conflict and you say it was all involuntary. I read a story from uh, President John F. Kennedy, his life, long before he was the 35th president of our country, uh, he was once commissioned as a naval officer in World War II. And in August of 1943, the patrol boat that he commanded was rammed and sunk by enemy forces somewhere near the Japanese-held Solomon Islands. But Kennedy and a fellow officer, they swam from one enemy-occupied island to another until they eventually found some friendlies that helped them get the message out of what had happened to U.S. forces. And so some years later, Kennedy was hailed as a war hero to which he responded, it was all involuntary. They sank my boat. The idea is, he's saying, I didn't sign up to be a war hero. It was completely involuntary. But what do you do when the enemy attacks? You have to stand your ground and do what you can do. Now, the fact of the matter is, you may find yourself in the midst of a similar conflict spiritually as a Christian, and you say, I didn't really sign up for this conflict. Maybe you were under the impression that when you came to faith in Jesus, that somehow 
your newfound faith meant that life for you was going to be free from struggle, free from adversity, no more conflict, no more striving, only to find out that the opposite was true. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is, when we become a Christian, that's when we find out that the real struggle begins. And yet, aren't you encouraged that the scripture says the outcome of the war has already been determined, fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we stand in his victory, and yet we still have a very real enemy. And that enemy has been unmasked in the pages of God's word. Paul is unmasking that enemy here in Ephesians chapter 6. And at the same time, he wants us to be aware as believers, uh, the wealth that's ours by virtue of our union with Christ. You see, because you've been brought into union with Jesus by faith, the enemy has set his sights on you. And that's why the Christian life is really a battleground. And there are plenty of places in the New Testament that show how this is the case. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to wage the good warfare. Paul says of his own life, uh, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And so one of his favorite metaphors to use is that of warfare, where he likens the Christian faith and the Christian life itself to a life of warfare. And so this conflict that we're in, it's not one that's being fought with guns and bullets and that kind of thing, because Paul is clear in this passage of Scripture that ultimately we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual evil. And so if you're there in Ephesians chapter 6, I want you to read with me from verse 10 through verse 13. And the Bible says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. and Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is, ultimately the enemy is not physical in nature. It's not flesh and blood. Which, by the way, the devil would love nothing more than to convince you that your enemy is another person in your life. He would love nothing more than to convince you as to the, uh, you know, the, the nature of this conflict that you're in. Because if he can convince you your enemy is physical, flesh and blood, then he can deceive you into pursuing fleshly means, flesh and blood answers to try to address those flesh and blood problems. And that's why we just, you ever heard the expression, we seem to be rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? That's really what society is doing. You think about all of the the, the political jargon that you hear and how everyone says, well, if we just did this and if we just did that, then we could solve all of the problems in the world. And Paul is clear here that man's problem ultimately is not his environment. Uh, it's not physical, but it's spiritual. And since the problem is spiritual, that means the only answer to that problem is spiritual in nature. God's got to do something for us. And he's, he's done that in the person of his own son, Jesus. And so we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now look at verse 13. In light of this, Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all, to stand. 
And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, what it means to stand strong in an evil day. We need the armor of God. And so before we begin looking at the individual pieces of armor, which I promise we will in this series on the armor of God, you really need to understand the the context of this passage of Scripture. Because if you fail to understand the nature of the enemy, if you fail to understand the nature of the conflict that you're in, then you won't really understand why this armor is so vital and why it's so precious. And so Paul has unmasked the enemy in verses 10, 11, and 12. That's been his emphasis there. We've got to be strong in the Lord. We've got to put on his armor, understand that the struggle we're in is spiritual. You have an enemy who opposes you at every level, who fights against your position in Christ. And that's been Paul's main theme in this letter known as the Ephesians. He's writing to the Ephesian church, wants them to know who they are by means of their union with Christ. At one time, they were alienated from God. They were separated from God. Uh, They were hostile. But now, by means of what Christ has done and their faith in Jesus, they've been brought into union with Christ Uh, And so unity then is also a major theme throughout Ephesians. Paul has been clear that that God's main purpose in Christ, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, God's purpose set forth in Christ from eternity past, a plan for the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, he's saying it's the purpose of God to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that there's not one microscopic piece of dust in this universe that's going its own way apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ. All right, if that's God's purpose, then then you need to know that the enemy opposes that purpose. And so where God brings unity and God tears down barriers, um, such as the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and now he's brought both Jew and Gentile into the church, uh, he says, which is a mystery that was hidden from ages past. Now that this unity is produced by the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ in his church, the evil one comes along and he wants to put those barriers right back up. And so where God is at work producing unity in Christ, It's the work of Satan to want to oppose that unity and to try to sow disunity, which is why Paul is so specific in chapters 4, 5, and 6, where he's saying that we've got to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. The first three chapters of Ephesians, he deals with our position in Christ. Now, in the last three chapters, he's being very practical. And he wants the church to understand that uh, areas such as the local church the marriage relationship, uh, your family life, the relationship between parents and their children, uh, your vocation, your calling in life, the workplace. All of these are areas in which Satan will launch his attacks against you to try to come at the unity and create disunity where God wants unity to try to put up barriers where God's broken down barriers, which by the way, isn't it sort of interesting that the enemy wants to build barriers up where God has torn those barriers down, while at the same time, he wants to tear down certain barriers that God has built up, which are healthy for us and for human flourishing. We're seeing some barriers uh, being torn down in rebellion today in our generation, 
which God has put up by means of creation itself. I'm talking about gender and sexuality. Satan wants to tear all of those barriers down and muddy the water. Why? Because he ultimately wants to destroy. He's an agent of chaos. God's not the author of confusion. Satan certainly is. And so that's why Paul is saying what he's saying here in this passage in chapter 6. So it's not a postscript or an addendum to what he's already said. He's not saying, well, spiritual warfare is just a component of your Christian life and you've got all of these other areas that you need to give attention to. No, he's saying you need to see your life really through these lens. You need to understand that the Christian life itself is a life of warfare. And between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, there will be no ceasefire to these hostilities but that you can encounter and you, you should expect to encounter difficulty because you have an enemy who has set his sights on you. And so is it any wonder then why Paul is telling Christians to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power? We're locked in a battle. And so I really want you to notice what he's saying here in verse 13. Uh, Take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, there are three observations that we need to pay attention to from verse 13. All right, so observation number one, there are divine resources that you and I need. Divine resources. Paul is saying, take up the whole armor of God. He's already explained the fact that we need to be strong in the Lord and in his own strength. Back up in verse 10, that command to be strong, it's a present tense verb that's passive in voice, which means that you and I are to be continually being strengthened. That is, it's not a one-time event that's happened in the past, but it's something that you need on a continual basis. There is not a moment in your life, there's not a single day in your life where you don't need to be being continually strengthened by God's own power. And if you ever get to the point where you think that you can make it on your own, then the enemy has convinced you, he's deceived you, and you've given him an advantage in your life. It's also interesting there in verse 10 that the verb is plural in number. So that Paul is saying, finally, let me just go ahead and say this to all of y'all. Be strong in the Lord. So he's not speaking to just a select few within the church This is not an instruction that applies to those who are pastors. This is not an instruction that applies strictly to a deacon. This is not uh, an instruction that applies to those who are spiritually strong or those who are just spiritually weak. This is instruction that applies to every single one of us. We all need the strength which comes from God himself. We've got to be strong in the Lord. We've got to be strong in his mighty power. That means that God has supplied me with everything that I need to meet the enemy's attacks on my life. Now, that's good news for you because it means that you will never be faced with a situation or a crisis or a temptation where God leaves you high and dry or he leaves you at the mercy of your own strength, the mercy of your own resources. No, Paul wants us to know that there's a treasure trove of divine resources which are yours in Christ and you simply need to call on them. Appropriate them by faith. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
No temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. God is faithful. Now listen to this. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now I've heard people often quote that verse, but they've sort of misquoted it. And and they've said something along these lines. God will never put more on you than you can bear. You ever heard that? I understand the sentiment behind that idea, but it's a misquote. Because let me tell you something, there are plenty of things that will get dumped on you in life that you can't bear. And you wonder, how in the world am I going to get through this? No, the promise of the verse is that God will not allow you to be tempted more than you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide. That is, he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. So he's not going to put you in a position where he doesn't give you sufficient resources to meet whatever crisis it is that you're facing. And so what are these resources according to Paul here in this passage of Scripture? Well, it's the armor of God. And we'll look at these later one by one, but belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the precious shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, And then he talks about prayer and how we're to pray at all times in the Spirit. And so God always provides for us what he expects from us. If he expects us to stand firm and to engage in this conflict, know that he's not leaving you to your own resources. But there are divine resources that you and I desperately need. Now, there's a second observation from verse 13, and it's this. Notice that there's a personal responsibility on our part. Paul uses the language of responsibility, personal responsibility here in this verse. Listen to the emphasis. He's saying, take up the whole armor of God. Or back in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. And so God supplied these resources, but that means you and I, we've got to exercise personal responsibility here, and we've got to appropriate these resources by faith. That means I can't be passive. I've got to be active. Take up the armor. I realize that ultimately the battle is the Lord's, and that's good news for me if I feel overwhelmed at times with spiritual oppression. The battle is the Lord's, and, and though I stand in the strength of Jesus Christ and not my own strength, in no way does this imply that I can be passive and nonchalant in my lifestyle. Because you need to pay attention to all of the verbs here in this passage of Scripture. Be strong. Put on. Stand. Wrestle. By the way, it's interesting to me that he's he's using the language uh, of wrestling in verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And then he's dealing with this armor, and and it's almost a different metaphor. It's... it's, uh, the heat of military combat. But that word wrestle, back up in um, verse 12, translates a Greek noun, which it's pale. It means our common struggle. Now, you watch wrestling. <laughs> I watch wrestling every once in a while. Used to a whole lot until I learned it was fake. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting, though. In, when you're wrestling, boy, I'm telling you, those, those guys... Hand-to-hand combat, they're in close proximity. Can't really wrestle somebody if you're across the arena from that person. 
So this implies just this deep personal element of struggle, hand-to-hand combat. By the way, that's life, isn't it? I mean, we're in the thick of it every day of our lives. The nature of the Christian life is such that it involves conflict and it involves struggle. And so there's this personal responsibility that I have to take up the whole armor of God and stay at my post. Because the very moment that I put the armor down and I begin to assume that I can live in my own strength, I give the enemy an advantage. And so don't surrender the high ground by losing sight of the conflict. No, I'm to stand. I'm to take up the whole armor of God. I'm to be engaged in this contest. But I do so in God's own strength while being fully dressed in God's own armor. So there are resources that we need. There's personal responsibility on our part. And then notice this third observation. And I want to just camp out here for the remainder of our time. Uh, There's necessary resolve to stand firm. Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So pay attention to the fact that he's calling upon believers to stand in what he refers to as the evil day. Now you know that life is a constant battle, but I'm sure you would agree with me that there are certain times that seem worse than others. Would you agree with that? If you go back to chapter 5, along about verse 16, uh, Paul has told the church to redeem the time, to make the most of the time. He says, because the days are evil. And now, here in chapter 6, he's saying, take up the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm in the evil day. And so there are evil days, and some days are more evil than others. Some seasons of life involve conflict that's more ramped up. I believe you see evidence of this throughout the New Testament that in the last days, spiritual warfare will increase. Paul's clear about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he wants young Timothy to know. He says, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He says people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and so on and so forth. He just goes right on down the line. Now, there's a sense in which that's always been true of of fallen humanity and human society as it's fallen and corrupt by sin. But as we're getting closer to the second coming of the Lord Jesus, evil will be ramped up in the last days. And so Paul's words here remind us that we need the strength of God. We need the armor of God so that we can withstand in the evil day. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, be prepared because you're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take every weapon that God has supplied so that when it's over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. So having done all, stand firm. And you say, okay, pastor, how is this done? How do I stand? Because I think all of us would immediately say, I'm I'm not sure I can stand. I can look back on various points and times in my life where I've not stood, where I've collapsed on the battlefield. My knees have been shaking. Well, he's already given us the directive in verse 10 to be strong in the Lord. 
And so understand that you're to stand not in your own strength. And that's why it's absolutely important that as a Christian, you understand your position in Christ. You need to know that your success in this battle, it's not by virtue of your own strength or your own accomplishments or your own failures for that matter. Your success, your victory is eternally linked with the victory of Christ. And so that all of the standing that you will ever need, you've been given in Christ. You see, a person has to have righteous standing with God, don't they, in order to go to heaven. You've got to have perfect standing with God in order to go to heaven. And there's not a single one of us by ourselves who can say, I have perfectly stood in my own righteousness because my righteousness is like a filthy rag according to what the prophet Isaiah says. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that I've been given the righteousness of Christ through faith in him so that all of the standing that I need with God has been supplied in Jesus Christ. And so I stand now on the basis of my standing in Jesus Christ. Now, doesn't that just give you confidence as a Christian? Doesn't that give you courage for the conflict? Doesn't that sort of lift a weight off of your shoulders so you don't have to, don't have to be weighed down with just this bondage of spiritual depression? When you realize that you've been given standing in Jesus Christ, and so now I stand on that basis. Because there's a world of difference when it comes to fighting for victory versus fighting from a place of victory. We're fighting from a place of victory. The hymn writer says it this way, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. So if I'm to stand strong in the evil day, then I really need to understand a couple of things. By the way, you know that the enemy that you face, the devil, there's really a three-headed monster that each Christian faces. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And Satan actively works against us in the arena of the world around us. I'm talking about the fallen human society, the world as it's in opposition to God with its ideals which are uh, counter to God's, which are uh, in rebellion to God's revealed truth. And then there's this inward propensity that each of us have, this disposition that you have towards sin. Satan wants to exploit that. It's what temptation is. And so the Christian struggles against really the world, the flesh, and the devil. So how do I stand firm against this three-headed monster? Well, let me tell you. Number one, you need to resist the devil and his wiles. Standing firm in the evil day demands that I resist the devil and his wiles or his schemes. Again, if you go back up to verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. And and, and there's a a Greek word that's used there. Uh, It's the same word we get the word methods from. And the idea is Satan uses certain methods and mechanisms by which he seeks to wage war against you. The key to understanding who you are in Christ is really the key to dealing with Satan and resisting Satan and his methods. Again, his number one tactic is to want to try to create disunity where there's unity. If you're a believer, he wants to get you to doubt your position in Christ. 
part of his wiles in your home. Uh, he wants to disrupt the unity that Christ wants to produce in the context of the marriage relationship, which by the way, you know that marriage is a beautiful picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. And so Satan hates that relationship. Is it any wonder why marriage then becomes such a point of contention? It's interesting, right? you know, you do weddings and you have you know, a bride, she's got her wedding day and she's got it all planned out and it's such a beautiful, beautiful moment. I love the, the beauty of a wedding. But sometimes a groom and a bride will put more thought into the ceremony itself, the wedding, than they do the marriage. <laughs> because often what you have from a spiritual perspective, here you have two independent parties. You've got two proud, self-willed individuals who are coming together in the context of that wedding ceremony and they're taking vows in the presence of God and the witnesses who've assembled and they're vowing to be selfless in relation to the other. That's basically the vows that you took on your wedding day. Forsaking all others. I'm not marrying you out of this sense of what you can do for me. I'm marrying you out of this sense of selfless. That's Christian marriage, by the way. And then the enemy wages war against that beautiful picture. And that's why there's so much friction oftentimes in the marriage relationship. What does Satan try to do but to pit husband and wife against each other? Or the context of the home. Satan will often operate in your home life. The relationship between parents and their children and everything that Paul's outlined earlier in Ephesians. This is the very battleground where Satan wages war against us. And so what do we do? We resist him, the scripture says, firm in our faith. James says it this way, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The key is to submitting yourself first to God, then... Once you're submitted to God and you're strengthened with his power, you resist the evil one. See, a lot of us, we want to just jump immediately to resisting the evil one while not submitting ourselves to God, and it don't work that way. We turn to some pragmatic solution where we think we can combat the evil one in our home and this, that, and the other. When the, the issue is you're not even submitted to God first and foremost, you, let me tell you something. You tell me what marriage will end in divorce where you've got a Christian husband who's submitted to God and you've got a Christian wife who's submitted to God. You tell me why that marriage relationship has to be destroyed. You tell me why that relationship has to end in divorce. That's the wisdom of the world. The key to a healthy marriage relationship is for a husband to be submitted to God, for a wife to be submitted to God, and on that basis then... There's a beautiful unity that's brought to the marriage. But you see, when you're not submitted to God, how can you really even begin to resist Satan? Now you apply that on down the line to your relationships in life. That word resist, where we're told to resist the evil one. There in James 4, 7, it's the same word that Paul uses here in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6, that you may be able to withstand. That's how he translates it, there, how it's translated there. It's a Greek word, anthistome. It's the same word we get the English word antihistamine from. Fall is fastly approaching. All of us will be on antihistamines. 
when it comes to those fall allergies and colds and all this, that, and the other, you know what an antihistamine is, don't you? Deals with some of those unpleasant effects associated with those allergens. To counter those symptoms, you can take an antihistamine. It's a proactive measure, a way that you stand against or resist the allergic reaction. That's the same word that Paul's using here. God intends for his church, in many ways, to be an antihistamine in the world. Where we've got a world that's awash with messed up thinking, where people have been blinded by Satan as far as the truth is concerned. And so that's why we need to stand firm in the power and strength of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can stand against the enemy's wiles while we stand for God's own truth. And so standing, it's both positive and negative. There's something we stand against, but there's also something we stand for. So standing firm in the evil day demands that we resist the devil and his wiles. And then notice the second thing, it demands that we reject the world and its ways. And by world, I'm referring to humanity with all of its various ideologies and competing worldviews, false values, those values which are contradictory to God's revealed truth. The Bible says that ultimately it's Satan who's behind all of that, who's blinded humanity. That doesn't mean that it's always blatantly evil because the Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He camouflages himself. He assumes the posture of an ally who has your best interest at heart. At least that's what he did with Eve. It's the same thing he does in every situation involving temptation. God is really the enemy. God is the one who doesn't have your best interest at heart. But you see, if you just buy into my wisdom. And so that's really the the ideologies behind the world, the world and its fallen system. It's Satan who ultimately is behind that. And the Bible says that as Christians, we reject the world and its ways. That doesn't mean that we, we hate the world and its people. So when 1 John 2.15 says don't love the world, John's not saying don't love the the, the world as far as creation is concerned. He's not saying don't love the world as far as the people of the world are concerned because they're our mission field. John 3.16 says that God loves the world of humanity, but where John says don't love the world, he's talking about the world as it's come under the grip of Satan the world and its ideologies, the world and its system, which is opposed to God and his truth. That's what we reject. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we're not to be conformed to this world. Don't let the world around you press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the Holy Spirit take the scripture and renew your mind as a child of God. So standing firm in the evil day means I resist the devil and his wiles. I reject the world and its ways. And then one last thing, I need to refuse the flesh and its wants. So if really I'm standing firm in an evil day and I'm faced with this three-headed monster, the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's not enough for me to just say, well, there's an enemy who wages war against me and, and, and the world around me, the the fallen world system that's come under the control of Satan, let's just be honest, there's still a part of me that gravitates toward 
the world's way of thinking. And there's still a part of me that gravitates toward the world's way of living. And the Bible calls this the flesh. Not flesh in the sense of just your skin and bones and your physical life, but when scripture refers to the flesh, it's used in a symbolic sense to refer to that sinful, corrupted human nature which every single one of us inherited from Daddy Adam. You didn't have to teach your kids how to lie, did you? You didn't have to teach them how to you know, pitch a fit when they didn't get something that they wanted. You didn't teach them that. You passed that on to them. They inherited that from you. Just the same way that you inherited it from your parents. And the same way that your parents inherited them from their parents. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in our first parents. And so the flesh then, this describes that urge towards self-centeredness within us. That distortion of human nature that makes us really want to be in charge and to be our own God. And there's this continual tug within each one of us. That's how Paul uses that term in his epistles, the flesh. In fact, if you go back just a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Listen to what he says here. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, he's speaking to believers here, those who've been made alive in the Spirit, those in whom the Holy Spirit has now come to dwell. He's saying, as a believer, walk by the Holy Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He says the desires of the flesh, these are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And that's why there's so much conflict in our lives as Christians. That's what Paul says was his own issue, Romans chapter seven. He says the things that I wanted to do, the things I really want to do, I often don't do, but the things I don't want to do, that's what I often find myself doing. So that there's this tug of war that's constantly going on in the heart and life of a child of God. You see, the Holy Spirit's come to live within you. The life of God has taken up residence within you if you're a Christian. And yet, sin is still present. The power of sin's been broken. The penalty of sin's been paid. And one day, when Christ comes for you, you're going to be saved from even the presence of sin itself. And he's going to give you a brand new body. But right now, in this life, we still wrestle with indwelling sin. And so what do we do? What's the answer to that? Well, it involves walking by the Spirit. And then he, did, he sort of goes on and lists what he calls the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and on down the line. And he says this is, this is what comes natural by virtue of our fallen human nature. And the person that doesn't know God, who's never been saved, the person in whom the Holy Spirit has never come to dwell this is where they live. They're held captive by the evil one. And oftentimes, this is the practice of their life. They don't know any better. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here's what the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a Christian man or woman. And then he says this in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
So that's the way that we live. The Puritans used to call this mortification, putting to death the sinful passions of the flesh. And the reason that spiritual warfare is a reality in the Christian's life is because the enemy wants, wants to inflame those passions. He wants to get you to live according to those passions and dictates of your own, that own, your own fallen nature. But the answer to that is to realize who you are in Jesus. The Bible says that when Christ died, I died with him. Which means that the old me was crucified with Christ. And now the new has come. I've been raised with Christ. I've been given standing with God by virtue of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so now there's this responsibility in my life to mortify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But I can't do that in my own strength. I've got to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the thing is, crucifixion may not mean a whole, whole lot to our 21st century mind but you see to Paul's first century readers they were very accustomed to this act of crucifixion they saw it almost on a daily basis where criminals were crucified the thing is you can't crucify yourself it takes someone else to crucify you doesn't it and so when it talks when the scripture talks about us putting to death the deeds of the flesh here's what what that means it means that as a Christian I'm submitted to the spirit of God and I put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit those sinful deeds of the flesh. Now rest assured, that's spiritual warfare. And it's painful. Spirit of God convicts you of greed. What's the antidote? How do you put that greed to death in your life? Well, there's only one way. You gotta give. Gossip, if, 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 if saying Gossip, repeating gossip that you know that that's a work of the flesh that just you struggle with in your own life. You've got to put that to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Listen, you do that by restraining your tongue and rely upon the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of self-control in you. And that's a painful thing. But you see, this is what sanctification demands of us as we live our lives in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Let's stand for prayer. How do we stand firm in the evil day? You need to realize that there are some divine resources that are at your disposal. You need to exercise personal responsibility as a Christian man or a woman and appropriate those resources by faith. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, you simply stand firm in the evil day, which demands that you resist the devil and his wiles and reject the world and its ways, and refuse the flesh and its wants. And you th if you think, man, I can't do that in my own strength, that's exactly right. That's why you need the strength that God gives, and you need the armor that he supplies. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I want to invite you this morning to come to Christ, to repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus who died for you and rose again from the dead. And the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But I imagine that there's some folks in the room this morning, you would say, Pastor, I'm a believer, but I've got to be honest, I've, I've really been living just under this cloud of spiritual depression. I know that I'm to stand, but I just, I just feel like my knees are knocking and I've got a track record of just collapsing on the battlefield. 
You need to be encouraged, my friend, that we stand on the basis of our standing in Christ. And that will free you from bondage and shame. God is for you, not against you. If God be for us, who can be against us? And let me tell you something. In light of that encouraging thought, I'm to stand my ground in an evil day. Lord, take these truths. May we apply them in our own hearts and lives. In the strength of another, our resident helper, the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.